0: Good morning and welcome to another edition of Ordinary Life. I'm Bill Curley.
1: And I'm Holly (laughs) Hudley. I forgot my line for a second.
0: (laughs) Um, You know, I was thinking about one of the things I wanted to say. I, I say every week that if you have a concern, pastoral concern or something, contact me or contact the church. And what I was thinking is that the church has done a complete redo of its website making it much more um, accessible, it's easier to navigate, and there's just a wealth of material on the website, particularly about how St. Paul's is responding to uh, the current um, racial issue in our country. There are a lot of resources there, there are a lot of groups. St. Paul's has begun a 40 Days of Prayer event that you can find out all about on the website. Uh, say something about our podcast.
1: Mm. So Bill and I have started a weekly podcast called In Between because it's in between Sundays. It's in between us and we are in between the no longer and the not yet. So weekly we're just taking on different topics that we talk about in here and you can find it on our website at ordinarylife.org or you can download it on Apple Podcasts. This week we interviewed Terry Thompson, which was a delight. It was. Yeah. I love Terry. Yeah, we could have spent a long time together, I think. And I've known yeah. both of you guys for so long that yeah. it felt like sitting with two, two fathers. <laughs>
0: And uh, thank you to John Watson, to Tim Leatherwood, to Olivia Watson, to William Budge, who are the technical people who make this happen. And you would be surprised if you were here to see them sitting on the edges of their seats, Mm -hmm. hanging on every word that we have to say, right?
1: Right, or more like looking at their phones the whole time.
0: Right. (laughs) And if you wanna make a contribution, here's the offering plate, just come forward.
1: So we will just hold it here until everyone comes forward. My arm's going to get tired, I think. Um, Anyways, since we can't pass the offering plate, since we aren't together, we can still collect donations online. You can go again to our website, ordinarylife.org, click on the donate button. It will take you to a page at St. Paul's website, and on the memo, you just put Ordinary Life. And it'll go to the general funds where we can do things like contribute money to nonprofits in Houston who are working to support the poor and underserved in Houston. So thanks.
0: (laughs) uh, Again, when we started doing this back in March, we thought that we would be um, doing live stream to everybody for about two or three weeks. And it's gonna be, it has been longer than that. It's gonna be longer. Now that the cases have begun to increase again in Houston, having a a new um, increase in those. So I have, and as I've said, we've been kind of finding our way along and doing this. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that somebody pointed out this week is that I've been neglecting to say hello to the pajama people. (laughs) It's
1: because we're all pajama people now. And now everybody
0: is a pajama person. Yeah.
1: Except us.
0: Except us.
1: Yeah.
0: Or I have found out that some of them have switched over from being pajama and pancake people. To being pajama and mimosa people. yes. So,
1: airport rules. Airport rules. Mm-hmm.
0: So um, no matter whether you're, whether you're a pajama person or a wine cheese person or a mimosa person, I'm glad you're here. And remember, no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. Before we get into today's uh, topic, because I did not mention Mother's Day when we went through Mother's Day you here. did? Huh? You did. I did?
1: Mm hmm. Okay. You know, I remember you saying Happy Mother's Day. Happy
0: Mother's Day. Yeah. <laughs> I'm part of a men's group. So
1: I should say Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day yeah, to, to me. To all the fathers.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm part of a men's group, and one of the guys in the men's group wrote a poem for Father's Day that he was going to do at a men's gathering that has already happened. But I asked if I could read it today, and um, so um, here it is. I'm building a house in my heart for my father. The first room is forgiveness. The next, a place to break bread. Food is one of the languages of love. Then a room to listen made bigger through practice. A place to sleep and dream. To dream of grief, to dream of hope, to dream of change. A place to play and remember those sweet times, few and fleeting, where my father softened into joyful play. This house is a house grounded in love, a love that withstands time, the elements, the strains of a family, and the beating down of everyday life. May we plant a tree in the front of this house that its growth might remind us of how far we've come and how much we have left to grow. Mm. Isn't it beautiful? That is beautiful. Yeah. I'm glad to have that. Thank you for uh, also giving me permission to share that. So... We begin today. Um, we begin with the fact that we all want to be happy. We all want to be free from suffering. We all want to live meaningful lives. I think that if there were not true for you, you would not be watching this live stream. And I myself confess that I have wanted these things so much for so long during my life that I have devoted my life to the study of psychology, religion, spirituality, um, and and Jungian analysis in an effort to secure these things for myself. And then uh, realizing my calling as a spiritual teacher to pass these things on, on to other people. And occasionally I have learned The things that I have learned at the knowledge and information level have actually made the epic 18-inch journey from my head to my heart, and I have experienced these things. So today we are beginning um, our journey in talking about the Eightfold Path of Buddhism. You know we are in this series that we're calling Interbeing, how Jesus and Buddha can guide us through this time of pandemic, and now through this time of increased awareness about the history of racism that has been built into the DNA of this country from the very beginning. And uh, we've spent time talking about why there is so much suffering in the world, and though we want to be happy. It seems that the very ways we go about trying to achieve this for ourselves only make things worse. One analogy that one of my teachers used, it's like um, a thirsty person trying to satisfy their thirst by drinking from the ocean or a, a, a drunk person trying to relieve the effects of alcohol by having another drink. So in his understanding of why we suffer, Put forth as the Four Noble Truths, Buddha not only put an explanation about how, why we suffer, but he also put out a, a way that we can end suffering. And what you will discover on following this Eightfold Path is that we can indeed find happiness and freedom for suffering and meaning by being totally present in the moment and by being present without greed or aversion. Um, Now, Jesus taught this too. They taught in different ways. And Jesus said that this path was going to be uh, narrow, difficult to follow. Um, And I think some people might hear either from the teachings of Buddha or the teachings of Jesus, they might hear these kinds of things and think, Well, these people must be the dourest people on the planet. But I promise you that the people who practice the Eightfold Path and the people who really do their work in Christian spirituality are among some of the happiest and lighthearted people you will ever, ever hope to meet. And I believe that when we recognize that everybody on the planet wants these same things, we all want to be free from suffering. We all want to experience joy. If we could recognize that that's what our brother wants, that our sister wants, I think that that would draw us closer to people and we could learn to live with more empathy. Just recognizing this would go a long, long way to healing the world's hurt. So I want to give you kind of a roadmap map for what we intend to cover going forward. We're going to spend a week discussing each one of the eightfold steps, uh, the steps in the eightfold path. And today we're looking at um, Buddha's explanation for the universal existence of suffering. This is the first noble truth. As a matter of fact, I think I could summarize um, what we're trying to say today is that The first step in the Eightfold Path um, is about understanding the Four Noble Truths. Mm -hmm. Now, the Eightfold Path is um, made up of a number of teachings. There are wisdom teachings. Um, Then there are teachings about right speech, right action, right livelihood. These are considered the morality teachings. And then there are teachings about right mindfulness, right concentration. And these are considered the um, mental discipline teachings. Now, there are a lot of different Buddhist traditions. Each one of them emphasizes a different aspect of the Eightfold Path. But no tradition excludes these. All of Buddhism focuses on practicing the Eightfold Path. You will find these teachings challenging. They will make your brain sore. Um, And Buddha said, don't take my word for the teachings. Um, Try them yourself. See if they're true. See if they work. Um, Don't just keep arm's length at them. Um, I think it's helpful to think of the eightfold path not as a linear path that you go from step one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight. But my metaphor is that the Eightfold Path is like a spiral staircase, that you go up and down at the same time. That's non-duality. Or the Eightfold Path is like a circle that you can join at any time uh, along life's journey. So we want these teachings to be practical. Uh, we want to find ways to apply them to our everyday lives and also to the pressing social issues of today, uh, the variety of issues of justice or lack thereof exposed by the pandemic. Uh, I think there several themes that you will hear uh, occur uh, over and over, and they're repeated over and over in the teachings of Buddha and in the teachings of Jesus. I want to talk about three or four themes that you're going to hear consistently through these presentations. One of them is uh, enlightenment. Enlightenment is simply our awakening to the true nature of reality. And it involves our being free of delusion and understanding the problems that are caused by believing in the notion of a private, self i think this may be the most difficult concept to grasp in buddhist teaching it's also in christian teaching um, enlightenment is not something that you achieve once and for all and then move on to something else um, it is uh, episodic this is a reason that a uh, daily spiritual practice mm-hmm. is so mm-hmm. important um, If you were to ask me, are you enlightened? My answers would be sometimes or not at the moment (laughs) Um, because we don't always live in a state of enlightenment. We can all be so easily seduced into something else. Another term that you will hear in Buddhism, and you don't hear this word in Christian teaching, but it's there, is the word nirvana. In uh, the teachings of Jesus, nirvana is um, being set free or finding liberation. Nirvana, again, is not a place to go to. It is a condition of seeing what is in such a way that we find freedom from suffering. Another theme that you will hear is uh, about rebirth. Some Buddhists firmly believe in reincarnation and a rebirth in several lifetimes or many lifetimes. I think of it uh, as the way that Jesus talked about the need to be born again. It's like being born again, born to a, a new life. So we are calling this particular time today looking into the future by stepping into the present. Because when we are fully present to what is and to each other, our suffering is reduced. So, uh, this pandemic has revealed several things about our culture. And um, all of us think we see <laughs> until we don't. And we see that we haven't been seeing. And um, I will—I I, I certainly think that this pandemic has revealed a great disparity in <clears throat> healthcare care delivery systems yep. for black people and white people are very different for the
1: poor in- and and wealthy who has access and who doesn't Absolutely. that we don't have universal health care is a real demonstration of, of inequality
0: so one one of the things that we're seeing uh that we i think we've seen it but we didn't see it. Mm-hmm. it, is this.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So there's a, a move now to um, rebrand these products. If you go on the Internet and you look for the original Aunt Jemima logo, it's blackface.
1: It's a trope, meaning it's, it's, a, it's a stereotypical trope. Yeah. Of what that sort of, like, the sort of happy slave or happy servant. Yeah, kind of how we talked about Uncle Remus not long ago. Yeah.
0: yeah. I'm not on social media. But I do have a LinkedIn account. Mm-hmm. I don't use it. Mm-hmm. But occasionally I get notifications on the LinkedIn account. And somebody who has a very high profile on LinkedIn and a lot of connections... Uh, On on LinkedIn, they're called connections instead of followers. Mm -hmm. Do you have a LinkedIn
1: account? Yeah, I never use it. I think I've opened it once. Sorry.
0: (laughs) So this person has a lot of connections, and this person reposted something Mm -hmm. about this, and uh, I want to read it to you, Um, and and I'm not holding this person up for ridicule. I'd like to give him a spanking, but um, I'm holding it up as an example for how we don't see. This is what this guy wrote. This is sick and ludicrous. And this is why I'm addressing this whole Black Lives Matter disaster on LinkedIn, which is a business platform, because this is affecting all business. Every large corporation is suddenly addressing all the wrong that they've done, whether they've done it or not, and actually just adding to this unnecessary divisiveness. No, I'm not a freaking racist. As an observant and visible Jewish person, I get attacked regularly here in Raspy, New Jersey. But I'm also a realist, and I want to stand up against the ridiculousness that is taking over corporate America, where suddenly, because of one rogue cop, every single company is suddenly guilty of all kinds of wrongdoing. And all it's doing is creating division. Nobody cares what color anyone is these days. We thought we'd left that a long time ago. Apparently not. I
1: have so much to say about that. <laughs> I'll reserve.
0: <laughs> you know what I was going to say about it? I was going to say that it's like somebody robbing people on an elevator. Mm-hmm. It's wrong at so many levels. Ha ha. Ha 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 ha.
1: Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of wrongness. There's wrongness.
0: A l- I mean, it, yeah. it, it, clearly the guy is not seeing.
1: It's myopic and small. It's well, seeing the, it's it's missing the forest for the trees. So it's well, looking at one tree.
0: One rogue cop. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah. Don't we wish?
0: <laughs> now you know, I I I would judge that this person would not probably call himself a liberal or progressive. I would judge. Maybe not. I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, He may consider himself one, Uh, but um, I do know that there are many, many people in the liberal or progressive group who have for a long time hoped or believed that racism was a thing uh, in the past. Mm -hmm. We have made so much progress. Let's just get all this behind us and, and move on. And as a white person, I confess that I have had a hard time seeing that I have constantly received special treatment because of the culture in which I live. My culture is built to prioritize the color of my skin.
1: What you've received is not special treatment, but treatment that everyone ought to receive. What you've received is, the, meaning you've received the benefits of the system while others have not. In other words, everyone should be treated as everyone.
0: Well, I'm thinking, I'm thinking also about it in another way. I have never been the victim of uh, profiling. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have not experienced discrimination in the workplace. I did not suffer from the effects of racial segregation in the schools that I attended. Um, and since this is the experience of most white people, I think we easily think that that's everybody's experience. Mm-hmm. Or... It should be. Right.
1: The the fact is it should be. The fact is it's not.
0: So we're in this really special moment, um, and it's kind of a chaotic moment, Mm -hmm. where we're having an opportunity to see what we have not seen, and to see suffering that we had not seen before, and to see our complicity in it. What white people enjoy as normal, black people do not. And uh, in the house where I grew up, if a black person acted like they deserve the treatment that white people got, my mother would say they're acting uppity mm. or they don't know their place. Mm-hmm. That was a phrase that I heard a lot in my life. Mm. So-and-so just doesn't know their place. Mm. So we we have this ego that traps us into believing that there's not enough to go around and we have to protect our resources and don't let them have what we have. And this is why we consciously or unconsciously support systems and governments that are repressive to people. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we wake up in the morning and say, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be an oppressor. But it's how we can complicitly be in the system and not even see that we are are in the system. So history shows us that people in um, positions of privilege and power do not easily give those positions up. And um, we have to see this. So the first step on the Eightfold Path is this kind of thing that we're talking about right now. It is right understanding. Now I'm gonna say just a few more words and I'm gonna shut up for a while. <laughs> You know that when we headed into this that I I felt that I was being way too academic about trying to present this because I think the first step is so essential Mm -hmm. to understand. I got introduced to Buddhism sometime back um, in the 60s. Mm -hmm. I took meditation training from Jack Kornfield. Mm. And um, we can talk about that sometime. I'm going to quote Jack in a minute It's something he said about right understanding. I don't
1: think but, I realized you had studied directly with him.
0: Yeah, uh, and, and so I didn't. I, I didn't. Um, I didn't like it, the way that Buddhist language uh, put this in language. I didn't like the idea of right mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. So I changed the words.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just like interbeing, you. I changed Buddha's
0: it. words to conscious understanding because if we're conscious, if we're awake. That's the that's the thing, right? But then I got involved with reading Karen Armstrong's work, *The History of God*, *The Battle for God*. Those very very important works, and I began to understand more about the what's called the first actual age that Carl Jasper's that that's his language, um, and I realized. What was happening in the the Hebrew prophets? What was happening in Confucius? What was happening in in uh, Buddhism? What was happening in in some aspects of Hinduism and, and other places? Was a, a uh, evolution of a right religion? It was a right way to behave. Mm-hmm. And if you go back and read the prophets in the the Hebrew Bible of Amos and Hosea and Micah, in light of that, they're real clear that justice is something that is right. You have to do the right thing by people, by treating your brother and your sister like you would want to be treated. Mm So later I came back to uh, Buddhist studies and I realized it, it is right. There is a right way to understand things. The right way to understand the origin of suffering and, and um, the, the end of suffering. So this, um, all of these eightfold, the steps on the eightfold path grew directly out of Buddha's own experience with uh, the Four Noble Truths. And um, I'm not going to go into the Four Noble Truths today. Uh, We have done that in the past. We can do it again. They're there. And the notes that I have uh, here will be in the summary um, that goes out on Tuesday morning. By the way, if you don't get those, you can go to the Ordinary Life website and sign up for them. You can go to the Ordinary Life Life website and sign up for the podcast too, Mm -hmm. can't you?
1: Well, it's just on our blog. Page right. It's on our on our ways to connect section.
0: Okay. Yeah. So I'm gonna skip over this material. And
1: well, what you're getting at though is that right view is acceptance that there is suffering. Right. Right view is not singular. Right view is holding an understanding that there's a multiplicity of views. Right.
0: Yeah. So there are two other things that I I, right understanding right understanding. I'll say it. Is the correct or right way to see others and the events of our lives? It's a more useful way of understanding. It's a wiser way, and using the words "useful" and "wise" is a way to bystep uh, the whole issue of judgmentalism. We don't talk about good or bad, or uh, in in this sense, but whether the behavior is is wise and useful. There are two other things I want to bring up very briefly, and then um, I will quit. In Buddhism, in this first step, there is a thing called the law of dependent origination. Volumes have been written about this. Volumes, mm-hmm. not just one or two books. Dependent um, origination about suffering. I'm going to summarize by saying, when this exists, that exists. When this arises, that arises. When this does not exist, that does not exist. And when this ceases, that ceases. So these two other things I want to mention very briefly, and then um, turn this over to Holly. Two aspects of right understanding. One has to do with impermanence and the non-self. Hardest thing to get in mind that is in Buddhism. This is not me sitting here. This is an act. (laughs) I hope it's an act that's done with integrity. I hope it's an act that is useful. But when I go home, it's not the act that Sherry wants to see. There's another way to be. It's an act. Um, one of the Buddhist teachers that I encountered said, um, you know, it's really a misnomer to say that you went to Paris 10 years ago. Since every cell in your body changes every seven years, the you that exists now was not the you that existed 10 years ago. Right. I love that. Yeah.
1: That's also impermanence.
0: That's impermanence yeah. as well. Yeah. And you find this uh, particularly in the writings of Paul in the New Testament, and you find it in uh, mystics like Thomas Merton. Mm-hmm. Only when we are able to let go of everything within us, said Merton, all desire to see, to know, to taste, and to experience the presence of God, do we truly become able to experience that presence with the overwhelming conviction and reality that revolutionizes our entire inner life. Mm. So um, Merton would talk about the true self, the real self, the false self. So we're talking about that. And two other aspects, of the, of the other aspect of right understanding that I want to just briefly mention is karma. People misunderstand karma as well. They think that, um, you know, John just always gets bad jobs or has bad girlfriends because he, that just is karma. Karma is not something that happens to us. It is something that we do that goes back to this dependent origination thing. We do things that have outcomes. Karma is what you do. So if you want to live a life of non-suffering, you have to behave in non-suffering ways and also to accept the reality that being human is suffering. Of course, not all of life is suffering, but a great deal of it is. Uh, we also have light hearts, and we enjoy things. Karma is what we do. Sometimes it shows up real quickly. If I eat bad seafood, I'm likely to get a stomach ache right away. If I smoke two packs of cigarettes a day, uh, it probably won't show up for a number of years. But karma has what we do has has outcomes. Hmm. Got questions?
1: <laughs> well, I think of karma as um, that our participation in the world is going to have effects. Mm-hmm. Everything has cause and effect. Mm-hmm. And you're, you know if you believe in reincarnation, then you believe you're born into good karma or bad karma. Or we can sort of see a single lifetime as moments of reincarnation or moments of rebirth, mm-hmm. even on a daily basis, right? So... Our our karma is in a little bit, in a way like what we what we we reap what we sow, yeah. right? We what we put forth from within can transform us. Right. What we don't put forth can destroy can, us. Can destroy us. Yeah. Right? Yeah.
0: This is this this is this way, mm-hmm. because that was that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think of a, a a quote I love. I think Chesterton is the one who said this, when he was talking about a related topic. He said, you know. Uh, We have to believe in free will. We have no other choice.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This is this
0: way because that's that way. There's a connection between being right here and what was and what will follow.
1: Yeah, and we'll get into a little bit about how history, sort of if if left untransformed, would, you might say, promote bad karma. Yeah. Right? So when,
0: uh, yeah. Yeah, because karma is something that... uh, that exist on an individual level, on a group level, on a mm-hmm. national level. Mm-hmm. Countries have karma. Uh-huh. Before today is over, we'll, we'll talk about the fact that uh, the pandemic is karma.
1: A little bit about in, envir- our environmental, our relationship to the environment.
0: Our relationship to the environment. Yeah,
1: so uh, when, sometimes when I think about um, the ways of Buddha or the ways of Jesus, I, I, my favorite way of describing it is that it's the hardest, easiest thing because it is so simple. Mm-hmm. But it is so hard. It's like when I studied, was studying psychology, the hardest thing to learn about was neuropsychology. You're using your brain to learn about the brain, you know. And why can't I just look at my brain and see the hippocampus or, you know. So it was learning a new language about something that you use every day. Right. So, it, it you know, it's the hardest, easiest thing to me. But when I think about this link between Buddhism, Christianity, I reach even further back. Toward Hinduism. This is maybe further evidence that the way or wisdom teachings do teach about all being in the one. And that our acts in our life, are, they, they, they coalesce to create a single life. So in the ancient Hindu, Hindu text, the Bhagavad Gita, it uses the analogy of battle, which is a kind of hero's journey to discover the true self. So this was thousands of years before Buddha was on the scene. And then like in later religions, the true self is free from delusion and enemies are in the mind. The link between these three traditions points to the fact that they're all versions of the way. I wanted to say that about suffering too, that so much of our suffering is being gripped by our suffering, is being attached to our suffering as elemental to us, as essential. And when we can let go of suffering as essential to us, in other words, not letting it define us, then we begin to uncover aspects of the true self. Mm-hmm. What Arjuna learns from Krishna, who is the Hindu God, is that he must participate actively in the world through yoga, which yoga is more than exercise. It's more than cute pants and you know, lovely music. It is, it is actually practices in the world that help one be in the world in a more unified way. And the mindset is all is one. This esoteric thinker Rudolf Steiner suggests that Krishna, Buddha, and Christ are actually all reincarnations of the same being. They're all bodhisattvas who give us an example of evolving consciousness over time. Krishna plants the idea of oneness by saying to Arjuna, I am the taste of pure water and the radiance of the sun and the moon. I am the sacred word and the sound heard in air and the courage of human beings. I am the sweet fragrance in the earth and the radiance of fire. I am the life in every creature and the striving of the spiritual aspirant. And then centuries later, Buddhism creates the Noble Eightfold Path as a way to engage with interbeing. There are right ways, as we've been talking about, of being to advance both the true self and the consciousness of the world. So interbeing is this concept that the collective is bound up in the individual. That's the idea of no separate self. There is no separate self outside of everything else. The self is always included in everything else.
0: So I want to say that I heard Jim Finley say something one time that kind of just blew me away. He said, um, God does not hear the prayers of a person who does not exist. (laughs) Mm. Mm. And yet... Most of our prayers, either religious prayers or our political policies, come from an ego stance. Right, that's, I want. <laughs> I want, and it's things that's focused on security and privilege and power and prestige. Right. And what Buddhism is saying is that self doesn't exist, right. but it runs us.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So when we think about inner being as the concept of the collective bound up in each one of us, Our movement toward enlightenment, any step we take toward the inner being, the state of inner being, is actually ushering all of creation forth toward enlightenment or collective consciousness. The opposite, of course, is also true. So we have this tension always between light and dark forces in the world. Buddhism also gave us the sangha, or the beloved community, One of the misnomers of Buddhism is that it's more focused on meditation and sort of personal enlightenment than on the world's suffering, but Thich Nhat Hanh corrects this with his idea of um, engaged Buddhism as a way to be in the world rather than to be separate from the world. Last week, I talked about the idea of Shambhala warriors who are able to hold and heal the world's pain with insight and compassion. He writes, the wonders of the universe are revealed to us in the meditation on interdependence. We can see that for one thing to exist, everything else also needs to exist. This is because that is, which is exactly the quote you had up there. This is because that is. This arises because that arises. And then Jesus, preceded by the Hindu theology of oneness and the Buddhist practice of enlightenment, shows us an actual embodiment of justice, compassion, and I would say fierce love. He is evidence that the Sangha or the community is actually the whole world and that any individual has the capacity to walk in the way. It's not reserved for a special or divine individual, but that any one of us can choose to be on the path. And and again, it's a mindset or a certain lens on the world, a certain way of seeing seeing yourself as, as engaged with everything else. I'm going to go to the Gospel of Thomas for a second, <laughs> which we've, talked, we've touched on a little bit, which is making two into one. And all of Christianity or all of, um, I, I think you said this a couple of weeks ago that Richard War sums up Christianity as making two, making one out of two. Right?
0: He says that yeah. all of all of the teachings of Jesus can be summed up in the effort to make one out of two. So here it is. Here it all is.
1: of the teachings of Jesus. And if you
0: understand this teaching. In
1: four sentences. <laughs> when you make the two into one, and when you make the inner as the outer, and the upper as the lower, when you make male and female into a single one, so that the male shall not be male, and the female shall not be female, then you will enter the kingdom. And I think of the kingdom as another way of saying the way. So the way is oneness. All three of these major religions taught that. This is what Buddhism means when it says there is no separate self. It's not, I was under the understanding that I didn't matter <laughs> when I first started to learn about Buddhism. And it was, that's a hard thing for the ego to, to take on, that you don't matter. But I think what I have since learned is that it's not saying you don't matter, nor do your contributions matter, nor do you even exist. It is saying that everything you do matters because it affects everything. Mm -hmm. That's Mm interbeing and interconnectedness. And the Buddhist priest, Zinju Earthlin Manuel, views oneness as a kind of intimacy with the world. She says it's messy, uncomfortable, and difficult, but worthy and liberating to attend to. By the nature of things, we are much closer than we would like to be. So oneness is not similarity or sameness, and it's not even harmony or peace, but it's radical inclusivity of difference. This week when we talked with Terry on our podcast, I really resonated with him when he said, um, remember when he said his his desire to be liked sometimes Mm -hmm. kept him from using his prophetic voice and speaking hard truths. When we look at what has happened to some of the people we admire who also spoke hard truths, Jesus, Martin, Malcolm, Gandhi, all four of these folks ended up dead for speaking hard truths. So we know that speaking hard truths is risky. It's risky to the self. It's risky to our very existence. And and when we challenge the status quo, the status quo tends to push back. I think the more of us that challenge the status quo, the more we're actually imagining or creating a new, a new way of being. I'm not trying, well, let me re-say that. I'm trying at this point in my life, I think, like Terry, to get more comfortable with not belonging, with discomfort, and even with not being liked, so that I am more true to my conscience, even when it's messy. I've been asked so often, or rather told, why do you make it all about race? Or there she goes again on her social justice soapbox. So all the time isn't entirely accurate. I laugh at my kids' bad fart jokes, and I laugh at your preacher jokes.
0: <laughs> You're not saying they're bad jokes.
1: I didn't say bad. <laughs> I just said There was an implication. Preacher jokes. <laughs> right. I like romantic comedies. I like detective novels. Um, I like shoes. I like art. So I'm not always all the time thinking about these things, but I'm wondering if my response to that sort of pushback from status quo should, shouldn't be to get quiet and small, but rather to say, what is uncomfortable to you in talking about race or injustice? I think I'll keep talking about it until I don't need to. So right understanding or right view is the first step on the eightfold path, as we said and it is in part about getting real with what is. Injustice exists. Being present to this moment is not forgetting the past or denying it, forgetting and denying our shame-based behaviors, things that we do when we don't want to deal with the reality. Again, Zenju Earthland Manuel writes that we must attain our understanding of the particularities of our specific embodiments, whether it be black, gay, poor, immigrant, abused, abuser, White, privileged, the list goes on and on and on. We all have a specific embodiment, and we must get comfortable with that embodiment in order to get liberation from it. Right understanding or right view allows us to see that our suffering and another's are are interconnected, and actually, once we can see that, we we don't have to be consumed by it. In her work, she comes to the understanding that liberation is not someone else's to give or to define for you, for that assumes that the sort of giver of freedom, let's say in this case, white Americans, that they have a more noble existence. That's the trap we fall into if we are assimilationists. And what I mean by that, if you're an assimilationist, you might say, if they act the way that I act, if they speak the way that I speak, then they will all be included and free. I wanna challenge that by saying liberation and freedom is a birthright to walk in the world just as you are, not to act as someone perceived as superior might act. To make space for everyone else to walk in the world just as they are is difficult because that means that we must hold, uphold and multiplicity of right views. And that's what I was saying about right view is that it is actually being able to hold that there are many right views, not one point of view. And the one right view is that there are many point of views. <laughs> so it's when we can be moved or changed by someone else's point of view, we're allowing that person to become part of us. Thich Nhat Hanh writes, when we perceive the moon, the moon is in us, which is an awful lot like Meister Eckhart saying, Christian mystic of the 12th century the eye through which I see God is the same eye through which God sees me. This is right view. I want to talk also a little bit about past and presence. Not present, but presence. All we have, of course, is this present moment. We have no idea what, what, where we're headed. We don't know what's going to happen in general for the rest of the day, for the rest of the week, or most of us have no idea when we're going to die or exactly what will happen tomorrow. But that said, I wonder sometimes if saying we just need to be in the present can't also serve as a kind of spiritual bypass. What I mean is that when I hear many people talk about their own lives, they say things like, my past is off limits. What's done is done. That's in the past. And I also hear people say, why must blacks keep focusing on slavery? It's in the past. The problem is, drum roll, what we don't transform we transmit. That's right. You've said that before. I have. Maybe a couple couple times. Couple a couple three times. <laughs> and, you know, the reason that we keep bringing the past with us is because we haven't transformed it. it and so it's continually sort of lugged along like an ox with his yoke into the present. So it's kind of like, I want to say it's like that junk drawer or that catch-all closet that we have in our houses where we just shove everything and we shut the door as tightly as possible and we just keep shoving things in there, that's, that's kind of where our country is right now. We've got a really messy closet to deal with and start sort of pulling out one at a time and looking at each thing so that we can get it clean and clear. Um, that I think is also right view, right? Is being able to see the past for what it is and not keep denying that it is. Do you have anything you wanna say about that? No, I'm good. Okay. (laughs) Um, So when we qualify an an external appearance as better than, as one, one is better than the other, we perpetuate this generational trauma and bring into the present all of the historical atrocities caused by this myth of otherness. We have sort of otherized anything different than ourselves and that's perpetuating a trauma. When we say, let's say a race or gender shouldn't matter, and yet we've made it matter all these hundreds of years. We've built an entire nation of it mattering. It mattered that you weren't female. It mattered that you weren't white. It mattered that you weren't a European colonizer. And so we've created an entire structure around those things mattering, and yet we want to say it doesn't matter. That's, I think, what you were pointing out with reading this guy's response on LinkedIn, he's saying it shouldn't matter, but we've made it matter all these years. So we have to deal with the fact that we've made it matter. And when we refuse to, uh-oh, hold on a second. I have to re <laughs> When we refuse to sort of face the truth of it, our view remains obscured and suffering remains untransformed. This arrests our ability not only to relate to ourselves, but to anyone else. It makes it hard to remember, and I love this line from Jim Finley, I am not you, but I am not other than you. Right? Yeah. So th- thriving, I think, is not a pipe dream. When, when you use the word that you had received special treatment, I think what most of white America is sort of immune to is that while white America has been allowed to thrive, we've forgotten to notice that there are many others who aren't thriving. It's not that thriving is wrong. It's that not holding thriving for everybody's birthright is wrong view, that all of us have the right to thrive.
0: Yeah, and when you say that there are a number of different points of view in right view, that does not mean that anything goes.
1: No, it's not relative. No. If we're all holding right view, led by compassion and insight, none of us are killing, none of us are hating, Because we're in right view, we may come to that from a different place. We may come from that through a different religion, through a different set of beliefs Mm -hmm. or spiritual practices, but right view is holding that everyone has the right to thrive.
0: You know, I have read the Bible several times.
1: I haven't ever read it all the way through.
0: It's boring in places. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it really, it's and, and not instructive. Yeah. Um, there are parts of it that are really difficult to understand and um, so forth. But it's, as Marcus Borg would say, it's our identity document. Mm hmm. Um, I've read the Bible, I've studied the Bible. Whiteness is not mentioned in the Bible nope. once.
1: Grace was made up only a couple hundred years ago. Right. Not a couple, a little more than a couple, roughly 600.
0: Mm-hmm. We've devolved.
1: Yeah, yeah. We've, we've differentiated to the point that we've begun to see each other as other rather than as different elements of the whole. So we may be in this sort of phase of, of differentiating or uh, separa- separating, but they say, they, meaning cosmologists, say that after differentiation and universe development comes a bending towards communion. We don't know what that looks like yet, I think, on a social scale. But I do wonder what that's like on a social level or if it's
0: possible. Well, I think one of the reasons that the studies in cosmology are so critically important is they are not showing us something that is new. hmm they are showing us something that is and has been.
1: You're showing us the way, the in way, a sense. yeah,
0: in, and yeah. and essence. And I don't. Uh, this is not part of our preparation for today, but I, do you have an understanding of why it is that we've reached this point in American culture, certainly, and in other places in the world, where science doesn't matter, as if people are really anti-science.
1: You know, I mean, think about how anti-science the people were even 1,000 years ago, right? 1,000 years ago, it was thought that the Earth was only 6,000 years old. Right. So we've come to accept, m- most of society has come to accept, or I would say a good chunk of society, the tipping point of society has come to accept that it's over 4 billion years old, the planet is, right? And that the Earth, that the cosmology is over 14 billion years old. So you know, we have reached a tipping point in the sense that there's enough evidence to show us that it's much bigger, vaster, and older than than we thought. When I think of it, like, why is it so difficult? I think of sort of human existence in the, in terms of a single human developmental lifespan, and we're still kind of in that late childhood, early adolescence phase of existence, mm-hmm. right? We're still kind of Broadening our understanding, we're just starting to realize that the, that there might be something beyond ourselves. On the whole, mm-hmm. you know, to, we're two hundred thousand years into human human existence. So, so I,
0: I, I would I would go back and say this whole business about separate self mm-hmm. and and there is no separate self. The from a Judeo Christian perspective. I think the genius of Jesus teaching resided in the fact that he came to have this understanding of himself as someone who derived his identity from his understanding of God
1: mm-hmm.
0: Now we can debate what this god right. thing is and how in the cosmology where Jesus lived, it was much different than
1: it was more it, compact it so was, was it, more, right yeah
0: but when he he embrace this identity what he went out and said to people was i have discovered that i am a child of god that's my identity Mm -hmm. and so are you Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we're brothers and sisters in this Mm -hmm. and that sense of identity shifted the thinking of a number of people and that started the jesus movement Mm -hmm. you know after he was dead that kind of identity so I, I agree with you. I like the way that Jim Finley puts it. You know, I'm not. I'm not you. I'm not other than you. I'm not God. I'm not other than God. And that when we overcome that kind of dualism, then we have a shot at a different kind of life. Right. Now, if you take the God stuff out of it, mm-hmm. if you want to do that, and a lot of people do, because I think Terry said in the podcast that w- where we did uh, that we. Our, our our worship in Christian churches is not caught up with our cosmology. Right. So we can have this kind of conversation and it's okay, but then in the worship service we repeat repeat creeds. We're still praying out there. Got God up and out and mm-hmm. a still three stored universe, and that's not relevant for a lot yeah. of people. But what I was going to say is that if you if you take the God stuff out of this
1: mm-hmm.
0: and and go to the people that you quote all the time, Brian Swim and, and a number of other people, uh, what this new understanding of the way the cosmos is, leads to, is the disillusion of all dualism.
1: Right. And, and this, is if, this is what I mean when I talk about thriving, right? The mutuality of thriving. Mm-hmm. To see that everyone and everything has the right to thrive is essentially right view, when we are blocked by our, when, when we are not allowing our own self to thrive or assume that I have more of a right to thrive than you do, then we can't possibly be upholding right view. We may right. be living a very moralistic life. We may not be doing harm, so to speak, but we are doing conscious harm in as much as we see ourselves as separate from anyone or anything else.
0: Well, that's another thing that yeah. uh, the new, this understanding of cosmology gives us, is that we're not separate.
1: Right. And I, I want to bring it to a very specific example between George Floyd and Derek Chauvin. There was a, a separate self operating in Derek Chauvin. I say this not to necessarily reap compassion for his actions, but to show the damaged self that was operating when he held his knee to George Floyd's neck for nine minutes. And yet those two are forever sealed in our memory as as interlocked. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, however we go about our lives... Whether we're in right view and operating under the assumption that everyone has the right to thrive, which is ideal or not, we're still interconnected. Mm -hmm. So our our negative views, our our wrong views, so to speak, our harmful views, are still connecting us to a whole, to one another. We're still impacting one another.
0: The first question I always ask myself when there's an event like that, Mm -hmm. either about the officer or about the victim, do they have children yeah because that's another thing of this is this way because that is that way and what we don't transform we transmit
1: transmit. this is the what i won't retell it but one of the stories in james baldwin's going to meet the man is in this telling of a little boy who cannot leave the field that his parents are in and he he knows there's something wrong with what's happening but he's not old enough yet to leave the field. And, and as, then we fast forward and see him as a grown man who never left the field. You might say that Derek Chauvin never left the field of white supremacy, right? right. Of his own supremacy, of his own right to cause harm to another person. Right. There, you know, In an ideal way, you know, so if we believe in mutual thriving, George Floyd had the right to thrive. And it was suppressed. Derek Chauvin had the right to thrive. And it was encapsulated by, by I want to say, power and fear of losing power. Right. And when he committed a murder, he lost connection to self. He lost connection to everything else. Mm-hmm. He was operating out of separate self. Mm-hmm. And...
0: So we, yeah. we, will, we will get to this in, in, as we proceed our way through yeah. these eight steps because th- they have to do uh, the ethical ones with yeah. not killing and right. all, all right. of that. We yeah, will and,
1: that. but, you know, in essence, if we, if we were all in right view, police wouldn't even have the need to, to police. Right. There would be no need for weapons, right? So Bell Hooks writes further on this idea of the beloved community. She says, The beloved community is formed not by the eradication of difference, but by its affirmation, by each of us claiming the identities and cultural legacies that shape who we are and how we live in the world. This is what we call unity and diversity. It's not sameness, it's just unity and diversity. Um, Bill, I honestly have no idea what time it is.
0: <laughs> we have about three minutes.
1: Okay, so I, I can sense that we're running towards the end. Um, anyways, I think this is what you know, Dr. King and Fannie Lou Hamer meant when they say, no one is free until everyone is free emancipation was not a single moment in 1865 that made its way to texas in 1867 it's an ongoing process Mm -hmm. and when we can see that all of our emancipation is bound up in each other's then we might actually be able to imagine what an emancipated society looks like
0: so um before we go Mm -hmm. i I do want to say that um there um we, so here we are in this this moment in history where we have the pandemic and we have this i don't know what to call it uh a racial uh unveiling is that a,
1: another racial unveiling it's always another, been there yeah. right
0: the unveiling of what has been yeah and um the fact that these two things have come historically so close together some people say that because the country had been shut down for a long time when the George Floyd incident happened, there was just eruption waiting to take place. That may or may not be the case. I don't know. But uh, I do know that when it comes to the pandemic and when it comes to the reaction to the George Floyd, which is just one among many uh, incidences, we should not be surprised. Mm -mm. I mean,
1: to be surprised, shocked, or outraged is a complete exposure of our white Ignorant. privilege,
0: huh? of white privilege. Well, of our ignorance yes. about what's going on in the world when you, mm-hmm. uh, when when human beings encroach into the environment in the way that we have in order to deal with issues of uh, f- of food anxiety and food scarcity, which is on the part of many, many, many people on this planet. Um, when we have interaction with species that we have not encountered and developed immunities for, something like the virus was inevitable. We're just waiting to happen. The same thing with this racial unrest. Mm-hmm. So when people say to me um, things like, when do you think we're going to get back to normal? I think we don't want normal.
1: I have said that same thing when people have said that. When is it going to get back to normal? I'm kind of hoping we
0: don't go back to normal. We don't need to go Mm -hmm. back there. It's not a place to be. Mm -hmm. And we're having a chance to do that. I don't know how this is going to play out. Mm -hmm. Right understanding is understanding the four principles, the four noble truths, And you go back over them and over them and over them and over them and understand them at deeper and deeper levels.
1: There is suffering. There is also liberation from suffering.
0: And it depends on how we live.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And there are right ways to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not just conscious ways, although I hope we do live with consciousness. Mm -hmm. How Jesus and Buddha can guide us through the pandemic. We're going to continue with the second step on the Eightfold Path next Sunday. Uh, In the meantime, I hope your spiritual practices are paying off for you and that uh, you are staying well and safe. Uh, In this part of the United States, the pandemic, the outbreak of the virus is increasing, not decreasing. And uh, so take care of yourself. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we will see you back here next Sunday. Bye.